Tom, as you know, the background hubbub of conversation and networking means that we can only be one place, and that is on the floor at Sports Pro Live. But this time, we're not just on the floor. We're hot under the lights of the Sports Pro studio. Yes, we are. It is hot in here. We're in a sort of perspexy box looking out over a very, very busy networking lunch after some... I mean, we've had a good, good few sessions now. Where do you want to start this conversation? I think maybe we start right at the top. Yeah, let's start at the top. Our opening keynote was Sergei Palkin, who is the CEO of Shakhtar Donetsk. A great way to start the event, obviously, as we've talked about before, the whole thematics of the next two days are around change. And they're not really any sports business or any sports property that embodies change as much as Shakhtar Donetsk FC over the last, certainly over the last 12 months or so. It was a very moving session, so much so, actually, that he left the room to a prolonged standing ovation from the crowd, which is not something you often see at a sports business conference, it's fair to say. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that at a sports business conference before. It's like, it was also a, a CEO discussion that I've not really heard before. It was very emotional, mm. completely understandably. Lots of reference to the situation in his home country and even the day-to-day impact of like what that's meant for him, like not being able to leave his house when yeah. uh, the Ukraine was first invaded. And then, um, obviously, our host for the session, Pedro Pinto, well-known face of UEFA football, explored some of those avenues and what that's actually been like leading a business. Maybe if we have a little listen into some of what he said about the newly launched UEC. Uh, they also invited us, invited us to join this organization, invited us to join even the uh, board of this association. Therefore, for me, it's very positive ways. Because if uh, there is no result in respect of uh, listening to medium and uh, small clubs, if there is no some kind of decisions in relation to those clubs, this organization have rights to be opened and to be supported by medium and small clubs. And if they invite us, we will join them. Well, Tom, as you yourself said, it really did bring it back into stark reality, the situation that the club's facing. I thought one of the very poignant parts of the session was their opening video that showed a montage of the team bus moving through the streets of Donetsk. And really, the backdrop was a war-torn country. There were shelled buildings, there were broken bridges, and it really did hammer home the point that, you know, sitting here in London, it can feel quite remote the conflict in Ukraine but actually it really is part of their day-to-day reality and for Sergey, I think a lot of the session was around governance and how actually they are totally reliant on the support of the international and particularly the European sporting community and as you mentioned the UEC is a, a really important new cog in that machine he mentioned that they've been invited onto the board and for him it's about not just allowing the power to stay in the hands of these small elite clubs that are based on European prestige and heritage from competitions, but actually giving them a seat at the table and most importantly, giving them a voice to be heard. Yeah, and I think that that voice is more important than ever at the moment. Um, I mean, this is a time when literally they're being stripped of some of their rights. And by those rights, I mean the most most basic rights is in holding player contracts. He spoke quite a lot about Annex 7, which is sort of technical speak for essentially... FIFA saying that the players can decide whether or not they want to play in those countries anymore and effectively just leave without Shakhtar being compensated. And for Shakhtar, like, being able to sell players has been such a big part of their business model for such a long time. Like, they've been real specialists in bringing over players from South America and selling them on to European clubs at a profit. And, like, we often think about player transfers as being a sort of a glamour ticker thing on Twitter or something that, like, fills the A block on Sky Sports News. 
But actually, for some clubs, and Shakhtar are definitely one of them, it's a big part of their economic model. It's a centrepiece of their survival, from what um, Sergei was saying. He said that uh, the, the Mudrik transfer, he, he covered in quite a lot of detail. And we don't often talk about footballing memes on this podcast, Tom, but we'll make an exception today. But when Mudrik was being sold, you know, the memes are flying around that Shakhtar were taking clubs to the cleaners and making the most of that figure. But he was saying that was covering operational debts and just keeping the lights on, really, at the club. So it really did showcase how... I think fragile footballing finances can be and that's probably a most extreme example of that. Yeah, for sure. There's countless examples where they haven't had that luck. So Manor Solomon at Fulham, a player that had been at Shakhtar and was allowed to leave and someone that they ultimately missed out on that revenue for. The Ukrainian Premier League is not going to be making revenues from ticket sales anytime soon. They've got to rely on broadcast income, which like domestically isn't going to be that high, and playing in the Champions League. So for them to be able to sell players, as we said, massive part of their business model, but also qualifying for the Champions League through having good players is also a part of that business model, because without that, they don't get to receive those heightened figures. Well, Tom, if that session was a pretty powerful exposition of the physical effects of change, Jeremy Snape, who followed soon after, talked a lot about the mental side of it and how to manage the psychological aspect of change, and it was fascinating. Did you manage to catch any? Yeah, I tuned in for a little bit of that. I feel like, as a bit of a cricket nut, you were very much a, uh, the pilot when it comes to landing the ship of Jeremy Snape for this event. <laughs> Leadership and, and all of that kind of thing. I mean, I'm a, I'm a humble news editor. So perhaps if you could explain some of the key takeaways or some of the points you found most interesting from that. There was one bit that I found really interesting. The sort of the dichotomy that often is talked about between the physical and the mental. He made barely any distinction between those two things at all. So he talked about stress being a physiological response that has certain scientifically quantifiable triggers those being novelty uncertainty and uncontrollability and when someone is exposed to you know varying degrees of those three variables there is a very identifiable physical response to that and that actually it's trying to really change the language around what you're asking someone to do in your business. So if you're a leader, if you're a manager, the way you frame certain challenges or frame certain situations, if you can frame the language that reduces the aspects of novelty, that reduces the aspects of uncertainty and reduces the elements of uncontrollability, there is measurable impact on the stress that that provides someone, which I thought was really interesting how heavily linked sort of linguistics and physicality work. Not something that I was particularly aware of beforehand, I'd say. Does this mean that when you're coming next to dealing with colleagues in the content team that you're going to be a bit more conscious about the way you talk to them and try and tone down that demon headmaster uh, style <laughs> that I, I know you're renowned for within the company? I'm yeah. kidding, I'm kidding, I should say. I, I, don't, I don't want the two worlds breaking out into a cold sweat with uh, too much uncertainty, novelty or uncontrollability. But the, the, the last thing I thought I'd say that was also really interesting was he presented a, um, a, a balancing scales with one side being your perceived ability to cope with a challenge and then on the right-hand side was the perceived difficulty of the challenge. And the higher the perceived difficulty typically correlates with the lower your perceived ability to meet that challenge and vice versa. And that actually, if you reframe that again in the language you use, it can completely change the outcome. And an interesting story that that made me think of was Dina Asher-Smith talking about her Olympic semi-final. She had a poor start and only just qualified. She sat down with her coach and said, 
got to knock it out of the park in the final after that and he goes no you don't you just got to do something that you have done dozens and dozens of times before and in training and that example is one where it's just retilting that balance again between you know your perceived ability to do the job massively reduces the, the perceived difficulty of the challenge in front of you so it's interesting takeaways that it's actually there's no innate sense of you know mental strength or resilience that someone possesses and so much of it comes down to just subtle linguistic frameworks that we use every day unconsciously i thought that was really interesting to, to learn about yeah perhaps so we can have a, a little listen into that clip This is the work of Carol Dweck. This is all about thinking about motivation and commitment in our mindset. So her studies with people with a a very similar level of performance in in maths tests. She took about a thousand students, got them all to take this test. They scored at a particular band. She split them into two very different groups. One got communication and reinforcement that it was their natural gift, their talent, their intelligence that was the key to their success. And to the other half, she said, congratulations, you've done brilliantly. It's your tenacity, your hard work, your experimentation all the lessons from the past mistakes and failure that have been the key to your success. So keep working hard, stay tenacious, you can win from any position. So over a few months, she kept this communication going and one group was led to believe that it was a fixed entity, this natural gift that was in their DNA that inherited this ability. Um, And the other group were led to believe that it was their tenacious aggregation or growth of these skills through time that was the key to their success. And when she offered them a chance to take a much harder test, it was the group with the growth mindset, this tenacious mindset that wanted to take the risk because the group that were told their success had come from the binary switch of it's either on or it's off. You're either intelligent or you're not. You're talented or gifted or you're not. Those are the people that had a lot to lose because if they fail this next test, the switch is turned off for good. Whereas if people with a growth mindset fail, they believe that you can find a different way to win and revise again and they'll succeed and use that learning in their next test coming up. So the language that we use when we talk about talented athletes or intelligent people in the workplace or naturally gifted salespeople is what we do as some kind of shortcut. But it can actually take away people's motivation and commitment and tenacity which is the very experimentation and the long game that we need through these periods of change. Because when the future is unknowable, not many people can see it straight away. It's the experimentation and the collaboration that we need to get people working really well. So this talent and this tenacity is a key combination in elite performers. And almost seeing it like we're in beta mode, like we're testing an app. We're very comfortable kicking and testing and getting the market to tell us how to use the the UX on a particular piece of kit. But we're not very happy having ourselves in beta mode with feedback and advice about how we can improve. So that mindset is definitely part of it. And then this ability to create a safe space, knowing that people feel vulnerable, that they're testing their comfort zone. We need to create that safe space for people to accelerate out of the change. Now, Tom, you mentioned that as a big cricket fan, Jeremy Snape was always going to be top of my radar. But it wasn't just treats for myself that we were trying to serve up on this agenda. We couldn't not have a little treat for you in there as well. And served up on a silver platter was your beloved Brighton Hove Albion. So how was the session that you were moderating? 
Well, Jamie Fake talked a lot about stress, and that's a word that I would use to describe moderating. I wouldn't call myself a natural when it comes on stage, but like actually being able to talk about something that I know so well made it a lot easier. I don't think always that sponsorship is the most interesting subject to make sound sexy. It's often quite transactional. But the thing that's really interesting about the relationship between Brighton and Amex is the fact that you've got this massive global brand and what was a tiny football club when that started so for context Brighton were in the third tier of English football when they originally agreed the deal and that deal doesn't happen unless Amex is based in Brighton it's their UK headquarters they employ more than 3,000 staff that's one of the reasons why community has been such a big part of that relationship I mean they do a lot there's a lot of branding you go to the American Express Community Stadium kit sponsor women's team sponsor training ground sponsor They're also the title partner for the Albion in the Community Scheme, which involves a lot of outreach, and they work with them on facilitating other activations as well. So on the session, we had Glenn Murray. Personal hero. A personal hero of mine. (laughs) Lovely bloke. He sort of talked about when he first started at Brighton, I mean, he joined the club again when we were in League One, and they didn't have to really do sponsorship stuff because Brighton Jobs or Skint weren't really asking for the same level of activation, and... It's very different now that going into the community and doing that kind of stuff. So that's sessions with kids. That's hosting open training ground days. One of the interesting things they do is this small business initiative where they put up players for interview with national press and then host those sessions in local businesses, in local cafes, in hairdressers in order to try and spotlight those local businesses in Brighton. I mean, he's one of the people that has taken part in that scheme. And that's something that they clearly really think about. For Amex, the whole thing is very different to any other sponsorship they have. They're usually premium tier Wimbledon being a, being a sort of prime example. So a football club is really different for them. And like, it's almost like, well, what did Brighton do for us? And that conversation's changing with Brighton becoming a bigger club. I mean, yeah. unfortunately dumped out of the FA Cup at the weekend. Let's not talk about that too much. But as they grow in profile, I think it helps both of them in a way that perhaps previously it was a better deal for Brighton when it started. But as time shifts... That relationship, while not probably being even to the point where Brighton are as well known as Amex, it's certainly a little bit closer on the on the other end of the scale. And it embodies the importance of moving from sponsorship to partnership, right? And that it's not just about that transactional, you know, what am I getting, what are you getting? It's actually growing together as a duo. It's it's very rare, I think, to see it, particularly a stadium that is sponsored by a big American corporate brand. I mean, if you were to try and, you know, slap a, a similar size business into a St. James's Park, we've seen how that can turn out pretty quickly. But actually, that's not the case in Brighton. I think it, it's, it's a partnership that works for the fans, it works for the club, and it works for the brand. It's very rare middle of a Venn diagram to find in football. And, and actually, like, Brighton's old stadium that we moved, that we got kicked out of in 97 was called the Goldstone. If Amex had come along in 2005 and called it the American Express Goldstone, it's a very different thing. I think the fact that they've been there since the start of this really transitional phase with the club in growing and becoming a Premier League club, they've been viewed as a supporter and not just someone that's here to put their brand on something and move away, you know? Like, they're well within the community. There's probably a good chunk of season ticket holders at Brighton that pay for their season ticket using wages provided by Amex. We'll step aside Glenn Murray. We have a new club ambassador by the sounds of it, Mr Tom Basson. <laughs> no, well, if, if Paul's listening, I, I am available. Uh, that's Camelin or Barber. On a freelance, you're not leaving me too yet, Tom. <laughs> but um, Paul Barber was one of the panellists in that session, CEO of Brighton, and he also received a shout-out from Dawn Airy, who's the chair of the WSL. 
Did you manage to catch that session, Tom, which is around leading the development of women's sports? Yeah, I did. Dawn Airy, an incredibly powerful presence in yeah. real life. Fantastic, like, like, isn't she? She's a really, really strong speaker. And like someone who's obviously got a lot of experience in the industry, she's been at the head of global broadcast, and she now runs what is probably going to become... I mean, the NWSL might have something to say about it, but the biggest women's football league, like domestic women's football league in the world. It's certainly getting there in terms of its revenues. She has clearly got the ambition to take it there in terms of its revenues. Like, there was a really interesting quote, and maybe we can sort of play that clip now, where she talks about how she wants to grow the WSL into being a billion-dollar business. It's the first time that the women's game, we could actually put a price on it, because before that, it was wrapped into a deal with BT, and the women's game was wrapped into the men's game. Not anymore. The rights are completely separate. We knew we needed to do a pay deal because that's where the money would be. But we also needed to have reach. And to have reach, you had to be on a free-to-air broadcaster. So we constructed packages so that hopefully it would appeal for both free-to-air and pay broadcasters. And certainly that worked well. And I think it's worked really well for Sky, who've been a fantastic partner. They spent, I think, as much money on production as you have on the rights. So of the BBC, where we're getting really substantial audiences, and that benefits Sky as well. But we're in the very, very, very early days of really getting this league to fly commercially. The economics are, are tiny. They're tiny compared to the billions of the men's. But there is absolutely no reason, indeed it's part of our focus, for this to be a billion-pound league within a decade. I think it should be even quicker. And we're seeing the explosion of interest from brands who want to be associated with the clubs, with the lionesses. So it's the start of a journey. But as you said, it has exploded, or it seems to have exploded. It has been part of a strategy, a very, very, very coherent strategy. But we've been thrilled and delighted by how that win last summer has just exploded the interest and engagement. And hearing that, Tom, it's not just her that has those commercial ambitions and that actually has almost a bit of a commercial swagger about them when it comes to the WSL. But Anna Kessel from Sky Sports weighing in on a question that came from the audience. Is it right that the WSL is not just a free-to-air product and that it's behind that paywall and will that harm its reach? And I think her words were, and I'll probably be paraphrasing slightly, but like, hell yeah, this is a commercially viable product and it needs to be. You need to pay for a premium product that you're receiving. It's a premium sports league. Yeah, I think that's one of the kind of positives about the whole WSL-Sky deal. Sky put the WSL on a pedestal, but also it's sort of shown the fact that actually it deserves to be there too. Yeah. And there is an argument about reach versus revenue when it comes to these kind of properties, because if you were to completely take the WSL and put it behind a paywall, you could end up with a dead duck. It might not work, but the fact that you've got the BBC giving you that reach on one side and you've got pay TV telling you how much the market says you're worth on the other that actually elevates the brand overall in general and it means that like when it comes around to Dawn and Anna's next round of negotiations I'm sure the figure is probably going to be a bit closer to what Dawn wants than what Anna wants. As our CEO Nick and our editorial director Mike mentioned this morning and the 10 lessons from 10 years you know it's about time that that investment is made in a big way into women's sport because the underlying numbers back it up. Yeah no they, they do for sure and hopefully like the more and more we position these kind of sessions at events and I'm talking as sports bro here and we continue to kind of bang this drum home with the industry. I feel like me and you, we talk about it quite a lot on the podcast. Yeah. I know they talk about it on stream time too. And it's, it's a really big focus for our events whenever we put these on. It's making sure that we're trying to push that narrative. And actually, that's kind of our responsibility as a media company in this space to do that, is to say, look, these are the facts. 
And you can't keep on ignoring the facts for so long just because male pale and stale over there says that, oh, actually, it's only women's sports. It's becoming a lot bigger than that, and yeah. rightly so. Especially having been involved in the event last year, and we're talking about the theme of change, there's a marked change from this time last year. It feels like there's a tidal wave, not just of sessions that are talking on this topic, but overwhelming evidence now. There are people making things happen, and there is growth. There's huge growth across every conceivable metric in this area. The one that's missing is media coverage. The media coverage is staying flat when it comes to women's sports, and that's the bit that, you know, it's our responsibility and our job to change. Absolutely, and we'll hear from um, Barbara Slater uh, from the BBC later on. She's one of those people that's got the power to change it. Well, Tom, maybe I'll call you at the back of Barbara's session and we'll, uh, we'll have a little debrief on what she's got to say. Later, the director of sport at BBC Sport. Okay, let's not interrupt anymore. Um, we'll tune back in at the end of the session. Let's do it. Well, we're determined to. And what is interesting, it's probably just worth amplifying that a little bit. So, if we go back to the 2012 Olympics and we compare that with today, the sports rights market has pretty much doubled in terms of cost. And the BBC's income in real terms has gone down. But I have to be honest, I'm really confident and upbeat about the BBC's place in that ecosystem because I have always and always will be an unashamed fan of free-to-air sport. And I do think that is incredibly important and it makes an enormous contribution to the industry. And I think that is increasingly being recognised. If you are now living in the UK and you want access to sport, there's tremendous fragmentation going on as well. So you're having to go to multiple sources if you want to watch and enjoy a number of different sports. So I do think there is a place for free-to-air, a certain degree of protection of the events that matter most to people at home. That's not just for the BBC, that's obviously for your other free-to-air broadcasters as well. So I think that reach, and we've got a number of examples, I think, of where we're seeing governing bodies bundle their rights in a way that recognises that. I think the ability as well of the BBC to amplify, we saw that with the Women's Euros, and when you've got audio services, Five Live, etc., you've got the sport website, you've got our streaming services, you've got other programming across the BBC, we've got sports news, we've got nations, regions, all of those different individual networks getting behind an event, it can make an enormous difference. So I think that there's an important place, and, and I am going to beat the free-to-air drum a little bit more. We, alongside others like ITV and Channel 4, we're not dedicated sports channels. So if you cumulatively look at the hours of television covered by BBC, Channel 4, ITV, Channel 5, it's about 6% of all of the televised sport in the UK. It delivers 60% of the viewership. And I just think that is something that is incredibly precious and we should fight hard to keep. So, Steve, we've just heard from Barbara Slater, and we can actually talk at full volume now. For me, I mean, I'm always interested in this kind of stuff. I thought what she said about the role of free-to-air sport, obviously she's the director of sport at the BBC, so she's going to be an advocate for that kind of stuff. But I still think whenever you hear this, it's always worth acknowledging like the real data of what that impact is. 
Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't expect her to say anything else, but there was definitely some substance to what she was saying, you know, about the role of the BBC in an era where the media landscape is becoming more fragmented, sports rights are becoming more expensive. And one stat that she did share was that public service broadcasters in the UK, which includes not just the BBC, but also Channel 4 and, and ITV, show 6% of the sport available, but attract 60% of the total audience. And that, of course, that gives an idea of the reach that these platforms can have and also the size of the audience that they serve. Again, she was able to provide some tangible evidence of the role of that in the ecosystem, especially when you're speaking to a rights holder deciding where they want to get widest possible audience. Can they do it with a public service broadcaster? Yes, they can, apparently. That is probably not a surprise, though. I, I think like the, still the scale of it, to me, is because we spend a lot of our time at Sports Pro and just generally in the industry talking about new innovation and linear TV on free-to-air public broadcast is, is nowhere near being a new innovation. This is like literally the oldest form of broadcast, but it still remains one of the most effective. And that's something I feel like as a narrative kind of gets downtrodden. Moving on from that a little bit, I think what kind of goes underappreciated with the BBC, we think about it as this big behemoth in the UK media landscape, but actually it has to be clever. It has to be nimble because as Barbara Slater said, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I think she was talking about in reference to London 2012, the cost of the Olympic rights have doubled since then, but the income of the BBC in real terms has gone down. And that means that they've got to be a bit more smart when it comes to their acquisitions and when it comes to how they deploy their technology. I don't know if that was something that you picked out on. The BBC's influence in the broadcasting market isn't just in terms of what it shows. As you say, it's technology. It's got big R&D departments. It was one of the first VOD with, with, with iPlayer. So it's always been clever in how it wants to use the technology to serve its audience. It's been able to use these new platforms it's created to perhaps serve sports and audiences that can't be served just by linear TV. And it's, that's demonstrated by the type and variety of sport it's shown. And one of the, the things that BBC's always been quite committed to as a, as a public service broadcaster is women's sport. And it was able to use these platforms to offer more women's sporting content, particularly football, but also rugby. And they were able to look at the data and see that appetite for women's football. And that had an impact on when it decided to go all in with the Women's Super League and bring that to linear TV. Because you could see there was this audience. You could see that the more people were seeing it, the more they were watching it, the more the great quality of the product on, on the field. And it wasn't just women's sport. She also talked about the 100 and the partnership with the 100 arose because the BBC wanted to get digital rights for clips, essentially, for England matches it was able to go to the ECB and say, look, we're actually getting these figures for the clips. People are watching what we're putting out there. And so when the 100 was devised, there was a package carved out free to export with the intention that the BBC would get it um, if it could obviously meet the ECB's demands. So it's been innovating in terms of how it delivers the content. It's now impacting the whole product, not just digital. It's also affecting linear TV. I guess when it comes to looking at those sample sizes as well, when it's weighing up those buys, what it, what it invests in, what it doesn't, its sample sizes are massive. So like, it is actually predictive when it comes to trends in, in sport. As you said before, it's, its income is frozen in real terms, so it has to pick and choose. And one of the core principles of BBC since it was created was creating something for everyone. So it does have to pick and choose. And Barbara Slater said they would be forensic with the data in terms of they could see what was popular, what they should invest in. But there was an important caveat to that. The BBC isn't just about audience. Of course, it would like to have these audiences, but it needs to serve other communities and other demographics too. So it won't always go for the most popular sports because it recognises 
part of its remit is to promote new sports, serve audiences whose favourite sport might not be served by a commercial free-to-air broadcaster. So, yes, it's, it's friends with the data. It wants popular sports, wants to be able to give that value to the rights holder, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Just one sort of final thing before we wrap up for the day. I'm always interested in the iPlayer. It's obviously a massive platform. But there was a really good question I thought about BBC's approach to putting out a dedicated BBC Sport app. Now, I think this is something they used to have and maybe have rode back on. It still may be available on some legacy platforms, but it's definitely not a broadly distributed BBC Sport app in the same way that the iPlayer is. And what she said was, well, we think that within the BBC iPlayer app, there is a sport functionality. And look, I use the iPlayer pretty much every day. And for me, I don't see it. Do you think that in order to kind of serve sports properly, it has to carve that out? Or do you think that actually the BBC is kind of doing the approach that it needs to take because of its broader remit? You're right. There used to be an app. I'm not sure it was on smart TVs. It was definitely on PlayStation and, and Xbox consoles. The thing about the BBC is, although it is very technologically innovative, it does have limited resources. And smart TVs are a... It's a wild ecosystem out there. So many different screen sizes, different operating systems. I guess the amount of development resources I have to dedicate to updating, maintaining them, guaranteeing the lifespan of them is quite vast. But I think I agree with you. I think a dedicated sport experience would serve audiences perhaps a little bit better. You can add different kinds of content, not just video content in there. It would aid discoverability, particularly for minority sports. I also do understand the argument the iPlayer can act as a funnel. It's this massive shop window for sport. And I think the biggest events, you know, the World Cup, the FA Cup, that's never going to struggle, but it always has to fit in with the confines of that wider iPlayer framework, which may not necessarily apply to sport. And at the end of the day, it has different mobile apps. It has a BBC Sport and an iPlayer app. So my... Uh, belief there is perhaps it's an issue of resource rather than an issue of philosophy okay mate that's uh, probably a nice place to leave it and uh, maybe we'll catch up tomorrow cheers tom good morning tom i am joined by you on the morning of day two um, of sports pro live now this time around we find ourselves in the vip lounge for our speakers and partners and amongst these oak panelled walls and many pictures of cricketing royalty, we're surrounded by our speakers and we've had quite quite a lineup this morning already um, on stage, haven't we? Yeah, um, I feel like we're really in the belly of the beast here in the uh, in the committee room at the Oval. Um, but it's been, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of, bit of a, been a bit of a VIP celebrity hub in here. Especially Which is why we fit in like hands in gloves. <laughs> More like the uh, the smelly dog in the corner. <laughs> The main celebrities being Humphrey Kerr, who was here with Sean Harvey, who's just over George's left shoulder right now. Also, Lawrence Delalio's just walked in. It's really yeah, an imposing presence, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. Um, but the, so the reason we mentioned Humphrey Kerr is that obviously they had their Welcome to Rexon session this morning with Sean and our CEO, Nick. Absolutely packed room uh, yep. for that one. I thought it was going to be a conversation a lot about the documentary and all of and shooting and all that kind of thing. But actually, what was kind of nice to hear was the evolution of the running of that club and yeah. the, the way that they've kind of gone about changing not just a football club but like the local community too. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting was they were talking about they're now entering the next phase of their project, which is, you know, it's no longer, this is a great story, this is amazing how far you've come. We're now in the era where there's competition, there's people who are getting a little bit worried about Wrexham being the new kids on the block. They've talked about 
the importance of the two-year cycle, this being the end of the second year of that cycle, two seasons of the documentary, and then now some of those initial commercial partnerships that were signed before the docuseries dropped, they're now up for renewal. And so that's going to mean a huge bump in revenue, a huge bump in interest from potential sponsors, given that they have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of viewers around the world tuning into Wrexham each week and tuning into the docuseries on the regular. So obviously there was an air of celebration to the session, given that they were promoted over the weekend. And it was great to, to kick off that session with a little clip showing some of the celebrations that took place in the town over the weekend, or, or city, I believe it now is. But it strikes me that the move to the EFL is not just rewards for what's come before, but it really is the start of a journey that's got a lot of roads still to run. Yeah, and there were some interesting things for me as kind of points in that journey too. One of the things that was talked about was the the push that they really made to try and get Wrexham on TV mm. or at least into the, create this National League streaming product and how they deployed the fame of their Hollywood owners to make sure that happened and interesting yeah. to hear that from uh, from a certain Mr Sean Harvey who uh, I have to be care- fairly careful given that he is standing a metre to my left shoulder so I'll try not to talk about him too much in his proximity but yeah. someone that has previously fought EFL battles when it comes to uh, streaming right Tom? Yeah and also someone I mean, he led the EFL too but I think if we can we can probably just hear that little clip from Sean now talking about how they uh, yeah use, use the power of Ryan Reynolds Twitter account trying to explain article 48 to two people who don't want to listen is a is a challenge um it's a challenge if people do want to listen the logic of it sometimes but uh, yeah two people who just only wanted to see what they wanted to see yeah but again what why was it relevant and it, it was relevant because we knew as soon as the documentary came out that we had to try and capitalize on the interest it would create in the US which is why we started the journey of streaming much earlier than the documentary coming out and you know we had a, we had an advantage we had an advantage in that every single one of our games was being was being filmed for the purpose of the documentary because you know football's a live sport you never know when that particular moment of interest is going to come so so we had an infrastructure in place that would allow us to stream games straight away you know and the frustration the frustration from my perspective I mean, their frustration was why can't we do it my frustration was I understand why you can't do it, but I don't understand the logic why you can't do it. Because ultimately, BT owned the rights to the National League, only broadcast a very small number of games in the UK. They held the international rights and didn't use them. So nobody was ever going to be negatively impacted by the club being able to stream the games. We were just, it was just you know, the answer's no. And, you know, there was all sorts of reasons given about integrity of competition and competitive balance you know, most of it was just you know effectively trying to avoid the position but obviously having been at the EFL and created I follow I, I understood how this this could actually work and we got to the stage where uh, at the start of this season the documentary was now airing you could see the interest in, in in the US and we were really concerned about missing missing the boat in anything other than you know, in anything other than film a documentary. How do you keep those people engaged after the documentary's finished? And, yeah, we got to breaking point where the conversation with Ryan is, do you fancy uh, creating a bit of a stir? You know, he didn't take much persuading, it's fair to say. I said, well, just do this. 
All right. And obviously that's when the fallout started. Now, you, you know, you will listen to the National League. The project was already well underway and it was coming anyway. Anyway, whatever the reason for it was, we didn't mind. Because actually what we said was, if you are worried about competitive balance and the fact that we generated all this additional, all this additional revenue, we'll give you it all back. We're not, we're not interested at that stage in the money until everybody has the same option opportunity we just want to ensure that we don't miss out on being able to capitalize on the new fan base that we're creating now tom another session um that i attended yesterday actually that really caught my eye was one from live golf um and their their work with you lift in particular looking at the the development of live plus their ott platform um that really has become their primary broadcast vehicle, you'd think, given um, a lack of interest, shall we say, from major broadcasters around the world. How much of that did you catch, if any? Um, and uh, what were your thoughts? Packed room for that one. So I was kind of really stuck at the back. One of the problems when you're working at these events is you always end up turning a little bit late. So yeah, I sort of struggled to get in because there were so many people there. But on the sort of the Live Plus platform or wherever it is, I, I, I guess for them it's kind of, and I don't know whether or not this was actually borne out in the conversation, but for them it's kind of, it's more of a more of a necessity than it needs to be for perhaps other properties based on the fact that, as you said, they've, they've struggled to get that coverage. And it I guess that kind of opens up the questions about whether or not, like, what is Live Golf as a business, right? What I thought was quite striking in that session was they brought up a slide about some of the results at the platform scene, and it was trying to be diplomatic here it was quite percentage focused rather than raw numbers which suggests that some of the underlying numbers aren't particularly strong and um, they did have some stats in there they've had over 1 million plus views which is you know impressive but certainly not groundbreaking for a sport that's had the level of investment that it's had with over 50 plus hours of broadcast but as you say it's 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 not it's not been a you know it's not been a, a total failure of sorts, but it's certainly not been the roaring success that the level of investment would indicate that it should be and could be. Interesting time to be talking about this actually, bearing in mind they just had their first event in Australia, and I think that's maybe something that the live business could do with leaning into a little bit more that global presence. I mean, a lot of their events in you in the US, they've got a couple here in the UK. Is the most kind of positive reaction and commentary i've seen around a live event is because of the fact that they've got a very strong collection of australian players they've got a decent rights deal in australia too it's not a massive pga tour market but they love golf and if there's been a failure so far it's probably not leaning into that more like if you've got cam smith and you've got mark leishman and you've got other up-and-coming aussie golfers then yeah of course you're going to sell out events and it's going to look really good when they're playing I mean, again, the sort of actually, I think overall in the end, the sort of standard of the tournament kind of let it down a little bit as an actual product, but the interest was certainly there. And that maybe tells you where it could go as a business as compared to kind of what it has been doing, which is setting itself up as a PGA Tour rival or an adversary. Well, you use the word adversary, and the title of the session was quite adversarial. It was taking on an entrenched sports powerhouse, which immediately puts it, you know, in direct competition. This sort of battle against the the establishment and the battle against the PGA Tour. But I, I wonder how much that is harming its efforts to become more mainstream. We talked a couple of pods ago about the potential deal between the IPL, the ICC, and um, and Saudi Arabia, and the very explicit recognition there that they need to work together and that the anti-establishment route hasn't worked and I, I wonder why they're still persisting with that narrative obviously there's legal cases ongoing and there's still you know bad blood that exists between those two businesses but you wonder how long it 
is going to be until the evolution will, but but really needs to take place if this is going to exist as a viable sports property going forward. Viability being an interesting concept with Live Golf. Clearly, financially, it's not, but whether it, viability yeah, in terms of longevity title, is a different what story. Are they I think. Competing against the PGA Tour sells its streaming product into yeah. another bigger media company, so it's not like they're battling for supremacy when it comes to okay, well, we're getting more, more numbers on our platform than they are on theirs. The PGA Tours platform exists on a completely different plane. So it, to just even frame it in that way shows that perhaps they, they're still not getting that quite right. And they're trying to talk to a business community. And actually, if that's the position that you're taking, I'm not sure that works even as a pitch into the industry at this point. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And we'll, we'll see how that develops. We'll we'll leave the speakers to enjoy their their cappuccinos and the rest um, over the course of the morning, and uh, I'll try and grab you for our uh, our now notorious pit walks uh, yes. through Mr. the Brando's delegate floor the at the close of today. Now, Tom, we have stood together at the close of the event. Everything has come off. But it's time now for the unpredictable element of the podcast <laughs> where we do our Martin Brundle grid walk, where we walk through the networking space as our delegates enjoy a glass or two of wine to celebrate the close of a great two days of content and sports for life. And we'll try and gather the hot takes of the delegates on the floor. Yeah, let's hit it. Now, Who do we're, you... we're, we're, we're mazing our way through. Yep. And uh, in my eyeline here, who's giving me a bit of side eye, probably trying to avoid us, is... My predecessor in the podcasting hot seat, uh, Owen Connolly. Owen, how have you found the last couple of days? It's been great, George. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Any sessions that you've called that particularly stood out for you? Shakhtar Donetsk CEO yesterday, I think quite good at grounding a lot of the things that we talk about. I think you guys were chatting about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. You know, when you talk about problem solving and innovation, this is really where you... uh, see how stark things can be for some people working in in the sports industry and and in the real world so to speak uh rexham this morning i think was that's such a fascinating project right now in terms of what it what it's trying to do with storytelling what it's trying to do with community um how it's trying to kind of reinvent the idea of sport as like an ip enterprise almost the last session with your boss yes. and Mike Long and Laura Williamson from The Athletic. I think there were some really interesting opinions. I think Paul, who was was helming that, said, you know, it could have gone on for days, basically, because there's so much to talk about. But just generally, I've been really struck by the, the level of execution here. The production levels are off the scale um, every year. I'm, I'm impressed when I see kind of what's been pulled off. I think the depth of the content, George, has been pretty pretty impressive. And it's just been so full. It's just tons nearly of a thousand through the door over the two days. Yeah. I mean, you were here probably for the first Sports Pro Live, right? I was here for the first Sports Pro Live. Yeah. What's the sort of the biggest thing that you've noticed that's changed from like an event perspective, and also what we're sort of hearing from the industry? I mean, from an event perspective, I think the first one, the, the kind of internal maxim was that we were bringing the magazine to life, and that being kind of the the spine of the company at that point. And, you know, we, we called in a lot of favours. We brought in a lot of people we'd interviewed for the magazine. It was a one-stage event, I think, that first year. So it was very much about kind of a, a spine of really high-quality content. 
a much more straightforward event in terms of the execution, although you know some of the little flourishes were, were already starting to show at that point. And then in terms of the, I guess what people are talking about, and you know we've we just had that last session, so that's slightly where my my head is at the moment. How ready are people for the things that are, are changing? And I think we've gone through probably at that stage, 20 years of these quite small on the inside institutions in sport that had suddenly been flushed through with cash from broadcast deals, from big sponsorship deals and all the rest of it. Maybe, not naming any names, FIFA, not institutionally cut out, not cut out in terms of governance or culture to deal with that. And now you're talking about challenges where you're projecting forward and asking, you know, are they ready from a creative or from a expertise standpoint to deal with, with some of the things that lie ahead, whether that's kind of reaching people with different kinds of content and experiences in different places, whether that's kind of squaring the circle of funding grassroots and funding the other activities they need, whether that's competing with other forms of media and entertainment. You know. Well, Owen, it's been, uh, it's been great to catch up with you. We'll, we'll leave you to the rest of your beer, but uh, we hope you think we're good custodians of the podcast. You're doing a fine job, guys. Thank well, you. We'll see you soon. Now, Tom, today has also been our New Era Open Day yep. here at Sports Pro Live, where we've had more than 150 women from across the industry um, here free of charge today. And uh, I think it's probably worth seeing if we can um, hear their perspectives on the day. Do you want to hear from my sister? From your sister? Yeah, do you want to hear from my sister? Yeah, wow. We have uh, <laughs> we have <laughs> Miss Bassam, I assume. Now, How are we? Thank you. How are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. Now, I'm used to giving Tom a fair bit of a hard time on this podcast, but I will I'll try and go much more gentle uh, on his family members. But uh, how have you enjoyed the last couple of days at Sports Pro Live? Uh, yeah, they've been really fantastic. My focus while I've been here has been on the sustainability. And it's been really interesting to hear about both the kind of problems and the solutions that the sector's facing. There's been some really interesting ideas and stuff that I'd not thought about before, so loads of interesting thoughts that I can take away. Helen, you've obviously not been to a sports industry event before. How have you found just the experience of being in something, I mean, let's be honest, very male-dominated, full of blokes? You're coming into this as a woman who's never been to this before. You don't even really work in sport. How has that experience been? What? When I first arrived, I was heading up to the New Era breakfast and I accidentally went into the wrong room. And uh, I walked in and I was like, oh my God, there's a lot of men here. Luckily, when I found the right venue, there was loads of women and that was actually really refreshing because I didn't think that I'd see that all day. So I think it's really good that you've put that effort in to making it a more inclusive space and figuring out exactly how you need to engage with women and minorities to make it events that can be more meaningful. Now I've seen you trying to escape, so I will let you go and uh, let let you sl- uh, sneak away. Us. Thank you very much for joining the Sports Bay Podcast. Well, Tom, sometimes there are rare moments in life where the stars seem to perfectly align, and, and managing to find someone from uh, the New Era Open Day who is also a direct relation of yours, it, it strikes faith in me of a deity there somewhere. Um, so let's con- let's continue in our grid walk. We could go and have a chat with our host for the event. It's an excellent shout. We're stood here with the host um, of our event, Christina Mann, who's uh, been holding the fort admirably over the last couple of days and really comparing the whole event, making sure things stayed on track and delivering some insights as each of the sessions have progressed. Christina, how have you found the last couple of days? 
honestly, the last couple of days have been amazing. I can't actually take credit for this quote, but Chris in Sportsbro had said that um, sport, and again, it is to quote Shrek, but it's like an onion. And there's so many different layers. And I think over the last few days, we've definitely seen so many different facets of the sports industry. And it's been incredible. And the Sportsbro guys have just been amazing to work with. And so many takeaways and already looking forward to next year. Sports Pro Live and Shrek is, is the hottest collaboration we've got going on. That would be a very cool collaboration. I feel like I want to see that next year on the, on the stage. You've also um, joined us today for part of the New Year Open Day where we've seen a different demographic makeup, it's fair to say, in the conference space. How have you found that? Is it refreshing to see as, as someone who's you know had to, to sort of blaze that trail really in the industry? It was mentioned on one of the panel discussions earlier as well. It's there, I'm not a trailblazer. I'm very lucky that there's been so many incredible women before me that I've like have carved that path and they've made it so much more accessible for somebody like me who hasn't got that you know professional rugby or sports background to kind of find it accessible to get into this industry. And I think it's an incredible it's an incredible place to be. It's an incredible network to have. Um, and it was just so amazing to see so many other women today. I know there's been a lot of sessions that you've listened to over the last couple of days. I'm going to ask you the difficult question of picking out your favourite. My favourite from yesterday was the Spotify FC Barcelona panel discussion. I thought that was amazing. And then from today, because I am um, a huge Disney Plus and Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney fan, I would say the Wrexham discussion was awesome. It was great. Good to see the celebrations continuing after the weekend's promotion. Anyway, Christina, after two days of very hard work, we'll leave you to it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And if you want to catch up on any of those sessions, you can do so if you're a Sports Pro Plus subscriber and potentially we'll be seeing a few of those pushed out across our social channels. Now, George, where are we going to go next? Who have you got in your sights? We've managed to grab one of our delegates and speakers here from across the two days. It's Gareth Langley, and CEO of Ping. Now, Gareth, we saw Ping's game technology on our screens over the two days, a nice way to re-energise everyone after the, the coffee breaks. And you're also a finalist in this year's Ignition Innovation Competition. How have you found the event? It's been absolutely fantastic, actually. It's been a great opportunity to listen to some great speakers talk about what their challenges are and understand what those businesses really need. And then also, of course, to be on the stage and to present our idea has been just a wonderful opportunity for people to understand what we do and see how that can help their businesses. It's been great to see you here and, as I said, to see that game in action. How important is it for you know, sports tech startups to be able to you know, be at events like this and, and have that alignment with some of the leading rights holders in the industry? Yeah, it's critical. So uh, as a startup, you're starting from a blank canvas. So you, uh, knocking on doors is a very difficult process. You're always sort of uh, trying to say, we've got this fantastic new thing, but everybody else in the world is saying, we've got this fantastic new thing as well. So having the opportunity to actually stand on stage, it gives you that credibility. You've been shortlisted from, what, 100 plus companies, I think. So it gives you that credibility to say, yeah, we're, we're great at what we do. And it says so here. And I think that's fair to say, because as you said, there's over 100 companies took part in the Ignition Innovation Competition. This week has seen those eight finalists pitching their businesses and pitching their ideas to our panel of judges. How has that ignition process been? It's been a, a fairly long journey since January, whittling down that process. But how important is that you know, community, that startup electricity that we see with ignition to, to you know, gain that exposure? It's been a good process. What's nice about 
doing competitions is that it gives you a chance to consolidate your thoughts. So having every time you're sort of doing your pitch deck, you're sort of re-looking at it. And when you've got these competition questions come in that are asking you to answer specific questions, it helps you step back away from your business and the same slide deck that you've been seeing all of the time to actually, if we reframe it this way, it actually makes a better proposal sort of moving forwards as well. Well, thank you for joining us, Gareth. My only, my only criticism of the game is that I'm not very good at it. Well, so, we're hopefully, uh, hopefully getting on screen in a minute, so we'll get another chance. Fantastic. <laughs> it's always tomorrow. Well, thanks for joining us. Well, Tom, I think we've done our walk. We've, we've collared as many as are willing to talk to yeah, us. Yeah, I think we may have bothered enough delegates for we, one for one networking drinks. And we probably irrevocably damaged one of your own sibling relationships. <laughs> so uh, on that note, should we leave it there? That's probably a good shout, mate. Uh, pleasure doing Sports Play Live with you. As always, Tom. Thank you.